I will probably disagree with the perspective that Donald Trump's presidency or his election and his, his going away marks a significant departure point, at least when it comes to the geopolitical developments in the Eastern Mediterranean. I would argue instead that what we see is continuity, not necessarily change in the way the United States perceive and behave towards the Eastern Mediterranean. The Eastern Mediterranean is at the crossroads of four continents. With the unique geopolitical and security dynamics in place, we invited Dr. Vasilis Kapis at the University of Buckingham to shed some light over the strategic and psychological aspects of security crisis in the region. Hello, and uh, welcome to an episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode's topic focuses on the changing security dynamics and the U.S.-Russian involvement in the Eastern Mediterranean. Dr. Vasilis Kapis joins the conversation as our guest for this episode. Dr. Kapis, thank you so much for joining us on this occasion. Petros, thank you very much for your uh, invitation. It's always wonderful to um, come back, even virtually, um, to the University of Nicosia. Thank you. It is a pleasure. And uh, just uh, I'd like to say a few words about our guest uh, today. Uh, Dr. Vasilis Kapis is a deputy director and lecturer at the Center for Security and Intelligence Studies at the University of Buckingham, as well as a visiting professor at the War Studies University of Poland. He holds a doctorate of philosophy degree in international security from the University of Sydney and master's degrees in strategic studies and European integration from the Australian National University and the London School of Economics, respectively. Before joining the University of Buckingham, Bill undertook postdoc research at the University of Tel Aviv between 2015 to 2016, and his research interests lie in the strategic and psychological aspects of security crisis and foreign policy decision-making, as well as the geopolitical dynamics of the Eastern Mediterranean with an emphasis on great power competition in the region. Bill has, finally, presented his work in numerous conferences and workshops and has been awarded by the University of Sydney for his excellent teaching practices in 2013. Bill, if you don't mind me saying, uh, I'd say you're definitely well acquainted with our topic today, and uh, it's quite interesting to see this very specific focus. I would like to invite you now to give us an overview on this topic that we're having for this episode, uh, because as we know, the Eastern Mediterranean is at the crossroads of four continents, right? So allow me to break down my first question into two parts. Uh, so firstly, what is so attractive about this region uh, when it comes to the strategic and psychological aspects of security crisis the different states in the area face? That's the first part. And secondly, how, in your opinion, do these issues shape the foreign policy decision-making process for these countries involved? Uh, Pedro, thank you very much um, for your question. Um I think you've already answered the first part in many ways of, of the question. Um, the, the importance of the region um, lies exactly in its uh, geopolitical value, 
as a crossroads or, or a bridge, really, between the East and West, between um, Europe and Africa, uh, but um, Europe um, uh, and, and Asia as well. And um, we've suddenly seen its, 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 its geopolitical and ge- geoeconomic value um, in the recent past increase as uh, tensions um, rise in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and the, um, the, the geopolitical position of the region is both a blessing and a curse to, um, to try and answer um, the second part of your question. It's a blessing because in times of stability, in peaceful times, um, the, the region has traditionally acted, uh, has traditionally been a bridge, a bridge between civilizations, a bridge for commercial um, and financial activities, um, a bridge um, between civilizations. And um, it, is, it is no accident that some of the world's most important civilizations, including the Greek civilization, flourished um, in this region. Um, the, uh, going back to the, the ancient times, we see these interactions, we see this exchanging between civilizations and the positive impact they had on the development um, of, um, uh, of, of major civilizations. Um, But it is also a curse, Um, a curse because in systemically tense times, um, the the bridge becomes a frontier, it becomes a border. And during these very difficult and challenging times we are experiencing, the Eastern Mediterranean is transitioning from a bridge between and among um, continents and civilizations to a frontier, to a border, um, to the uh, outermost um, areas um, of either the West or the East, depending on where you are and uh, depending on your uh, particular preferences. Um, now, when it comes to decision-making, um, the these particular qualities I just described have a major impact um, on um, the fate and the trajectory um, that each country chooses um, to um, pursue. Whereas whereas major powers or countries um, that um, are not affected by um, by these, these, these tense conditions um, can be said to be relatively uh, benign um, in terms of decision-making. Um, erroneous decisions in, in the case of, of the Eastern Mediterranean, problematic um, leadership can lead the country to a disaster. And we have to remember that the Eastern Mediterranean is mostly comprised of small, vulnerable, and oftentimes problematic states. So it's, again, no accident that in in our recent history, erroneous decisions by Greek, Cypriot, Israeli 
Lebanese Egyptian policymakers affected these countries in a very negative or very positive way. So the, the importance of decision making when you live in this very bad neighborhood, to put it to put it bluntly, um, can be very serious. The, the the different decisions taken at the leadership level they help create or sometimes destroy dismantle alliances and which actually brings me to this next point uh, because you've touched upon a lot of different uh, and interesting uh, bits here but I want to break this down a bit and look at a more comparative setting between uh, when we look at current affairs looking at before uh, 2016 which was up until the presidency of Barack Obama in the United States and uh, later on when President Trump took up uh, the presidency and obviously today we have uh, President Biden uh, who is probably going to bring in new dynamics into this uh, equation but let's take it one step at a time so first of all let's look at the various actors at play that we've had up until 2016 what was the general security dynamic feeling in place up until that point and who had a more active role at this point in the Eastern Mediterranean? This is a very, very interesting question. And it's an interesting question because I will probably um, disagree with the perspective that Donald Trump's presidency or his election and his, his going away marks a significant departure point, at least when it comes to the geopolitical developments in the Eastern Mediterranean. I would argue instead that what we see is continuity, not necessarily change in the way the United States perceive and behave towards the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, I will take you back to um, the uh, Lehman Brothers collapse and the Obama presidency um, and the 2010s um, was a time of American retrenchment as Barack Obama tried to very carefully handle what was in essence um, the most traumatic financial crisis the United States um, had experienced after the Second World War. And um, at the same time, Barack Obama's administration, we shouldn't forget, um, had to address the worsening perception, the worsening image of the United States, not only in the region, but throughout the world. Um, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars um, in 2001 and 2003, respectively, had um, had, had come into a stalemate um, and the American involvement in the Middle East and elsewhere had created an atmosphere of um, distrust and, and um, uh, disillusionment in many ways um, with regards to um, America's capacity to lead um, internationally. So what Barack Obama started doing and um, we can see um, the Trump administration mainly um, continuing this very policy with a few differentiations is a gradual but very firm American disengagement from the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, whether we're looking at troop numbers, military maneuvers, 
diplomatic engagement, um, there's, there's really not that much of a difference, I would dare to say, between the Obama and Trump administrations. In many ways, I expect to see a very similar pattern um, by the, um, the new um, resident of the White House. And so far, we can, only, we can only speak about indications, not evidence, but what we see so far is, is a desire um, to pretty much um, continue um, the American uh, grand strategy um, that Barack Obama essentially inaugurated. Yeah, it's uh, it's a very interesting take because it's uh, sometimes a lot of different analysts, especially in the mainstream media, that what they enjoy uh, portraying is this uh, sort of um, milestone uh, in order to separate that, essentially to link that uh, each uh, different with the coming of a new administration. You have a new, a completely new policy, but especially when we look at foreign policy and security status in general, there has to be a continuity and there is a continuity, especially when it comes to uh, such a region as the Eastern Mediterranean. But there is, however, this other interesting development happening, uh, which has obviously been uh, pre-existing even during other administrations. There's this, uh, the Russian element, so the Russian involvement in the region. Would you say that Russia, and I'm not, I'm not talking about its own sphere of influence, but would you say that they've sort of started to reimagine themselves in different other roles within this region? Obviously, they've, they've, they've had a leading role, especially when it comes to the Syrian conflict. But uh, w- what is Russia up to in relation to uh, how the U.S. Uh, is exercising its foreign policy. How is Russia responding at this point? I think that we can all probably agree that that the Russian footprint in the Eastern Mediterranean has been strengthened in recent years. And, of course, in in many ways, this is a natural development. American retrenchment, starting with the Obama years, and we have to remember the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring was an incredible development, not only because of its implications for the states, the countries involved themselves, but but also because it was, in in a sense, the first signal um, from the United States that the country's country's geopolitical presence would be uh, reduced in scope and size. So in many ways, the developments in Egypt were left unattended by the United States and the West in in general. The crisis in Syria was not addressed, at least not in a proper and robust way, by the US administration, despite the fact that a few years ago, the uh, Iraqi Kurdish region had essentially been adopted by the US military. And this was a, a perfect opportunity to do the same in the Syrian confrontation, yet this never materialized despite the the support to the Syrian Kurds in their fight against the Islamic State. We could say that the Libyan case was the exception, but then again, if we look closely, it was the French, not the Americans, that essentially spearheaded the Western intervention in Libya. 
Americans themselves were very reluctant um, to interfere, at least, at least in the early stages of the conflict. So to summarize, nature and, and international relations abhor vacuum. And there was a vacuum, a power vacuum in one of the most contested geopolitically regions in the world. And following the Crimean annexation and the consolidation of Russian maritime presence in the Black Sea, it only made sense to bolster Russian naval presence and have Russian ships being supported and, if possible, permanently based in and around the Mediterranean. So the developments in Syria, the surge of Russian military presence, particularly after uh, 2015, are a natural step, the natural evolution of um, Russian geopolitical priorities taking advantage the retrenchment, disengagement I just described. So nowadays, we can only witness the implications of, of an increased Russian presence. Yes, in, in some ways, Russia um, has uh, abandoned its former allies in um, the region because they chose a different path. Think Montenegro, for example. Think Greece and Cyprus to a certain extent. Um, because these countries 10, 15 years ago were regarded as close Russian allies. And Vladimir Putin recently declined an invitation to be present in the bicentennial festivities for, for the Greek independence that are scheduled for this coming March. So this is, this is in, in some ways, a major departure. But at the same time, Russia is now more powerful than ever in Syria, in Libya, therefore one could say that it does not really need to have a close relationship with either Greece or Cyprus. So the, the consequences, the implications are very important. Um, there's an anti-access area denial, essentially zone, over southeastern Mediterranean, generated by the long-range um, weaponry station in, in Syria by Russia. And there's a heavy presence of Russia in, in Libya as well. Um, the Israeli Air Force cannot operate without um, the Russian Air Force uh, monitoring its movements very closely. And um, the, 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 the Russian Navy operates seamlessly uh, between the Mediterranean and, and the Black Sea. So these are, these are relatively new developments and, and things that we would have thought very difficult or, or impossible only a few years ago. In answering this question, you mostly touched upon the issue of uh, uh, intervention and how these changes are reflected, how, I mean, how... Um, especially from the Russian perspective, what sort of new changes that we see here uh, as a result of the different interventionist policies. But I, I would also like to ask, building on further to this, in 2011, we've had two, as you've rightly mentioned, two large-scale operations in uh, both Syria and in Libya. We see a completely different political environment in Libya today as compared to 2011. In Syria, we're actually, in March, we are entering the 10th uh, year anniversary since the start 
of the civil war. So I have to ask, um, do you feel that intervention as such in some cases from countries like the United States or obviously Russia as well, do you feel that intervention brings more trouble for the Eastern Mediterranean than what it would have been had uh, these countries decided to left to leave the region alone on its own to uh, <laughs> potentially either I don't know having to deal with its own conflict uh, or be swallowed by it. Excellent. I think that we need to rethink what the implications of foreign intervention are. The academics. And universities always um, lag uh, a little bit in terms of following the, the the discourse that is a result of contemporary developments. What do I mean? I think the emphasis on um, the study of American foreign and security policy is on intervention and, it, and its adverse consequences. We've got programs and courses in British um, universities that paint a very bleak picture about uh, American foreign policy and intervention, particularly in the Middle East, but also in the Eastern Mediterranean. Recent developments have showcased that the absence of intervention, one way or another, can actually exacerbate tensions and exacerbate conflict. The fact that a region is up for grabs is not necessarily a good thing. Replacing one external pacifier, quotation marks or not, with two or more contestants is not necessarily a recipe for success. But we've seen what happened in the region after 2010. Essentially, Russia and Turkey have been slicing up uh, former states and carving up spheres of influence from Libya all the way now to the Caucasus. Uh, and we saw what happened with the Azeri-Armenian conflict. And this is just a next episode in um, developments originating in the Eastern Mediterranean. So we have to be very cautious about making generalizations about international intervention. After the first Gulf War, the United States adopted Iraqi Kurdistan. And for the first time, the Kurds in northern Iraq, a nation that had sustained discrimination and widespread killing by the um, Saddam Hussein regime, was able to build a democratic, prosperous society. And we've reached the point in, in recent months where um, Turkey has targeted repeatedly the structures, um, the cities and villages of the Iraqi Kurdistan region. And we've seen a, a rollback of an otherwise stabilizing process. So we all have traumatic experiences from American interventions, um, whether military or political. Greeks have a very vivid memory of, of American political intervention in Greece in the 60s. But we have to be pragmatic about what the consequences can be. You're looking at also within your research and your work overall, you're looking also at the psychological aspects of security crisis, right? And you've said that sometimes within academic circles, we need to trace, we need to follow better the discourse. And uh, how do we touch upon what are the most key, well, not the most key, but like what are the a couple of key aspects 
of this psychology in security crisis that you'd see, especially in this region? There's quite a few um, very interesting aspects to crisis management and their psychological implications. The, the, the literature in general, the scientific literature, is, if I could say, quite afraid, quite scared of international security crisis. The, the, the mainstream understanding is that crises exacerbate misperception and misperception can lead to conflict. And in, in history, uh, we do have examples where um, this fear actually was seen to be valid. So the nationalist wave just before the First World War is, is a case in point. And the misperceptions uh, leading to the Korean War during the Cold War, for example, is another. The leadership perceptions have been proven indeed to be very biased and guided by um, mistrust and hostility, particularly with regards to what we call rivalries in international relations. And there is an understanding among political psychologists that um, this can result to exacerbated hostility and uncertainty that can lead to escalation and, and inadvertent conflict. So there's a lot of there's a lot of academic background, and essentially the instrument of confidence building measures is based around the notion that by generating trust, uh, these misperceptions can cease to exist, and therefore cooperation can prevail. Nevertheless, one could also say that the opposite may be true. Oftentimes, crises act as a catalyst in understanding long-running trends that were hitherto neglected, perhaps, or misunderstood. And I can give you a few examples from the Eastern Mediterranean and its, its recent history. We understood, and in a very unpleasant way, in 1996, that the Turkish approach with regards to the Aegean Sea uh, was not necessarily about capturing islands belonging to Greece, but instead casting doubt on the maritime delineation between the two countries. So we understood, and we understood it through a very serious crisis in early '96, that Ankara had a revisionist agenda, but one that would be supported by a low-intensity, persistent conflict that since that point has become a permanent element in Greek-Turkish relations. The S-300 crisis a few years later in Cyprus and Greece also alerted leaders, particularly in Cyprus, to the fact that unfortunately Greece was unwilling to provide its unwavering support to the Cypriot defense. And this led to essentially the demise of the joint defense doctrine between Greece and Cyprus, as well as the de essential disarming of the Cypriot National Guard. So, however painful they are, some crises can actually enlighten leaders and analysts to understand what the underlying trends are. It took, more recently, the newly elected government in Greece, a major border crisis between Greece and Turkey, in Evros, 
the crisis of early 2020 to realize that the Turkish intentions towards Greece um, could actually be have far-reaching implications for the country's sovereignty and stability. And this is probably when the, the country's leadership decided that its former policy of reducing defense expenditure was actually a counterproductive one. So even during a major economic and social crisis during a pandemic, the Greek government decided to increase its defense spending in a robust way to compensate for its chronic lack of investment because prior, previous governments, previous administrations believed that it was actually feasible to come to an understanding with Turkey. So sometimes crises can be illuminating. Of course, they're always dangerous, but perception-wise, they can actually be supportive in making accurate inferences, if, if we can use the, the, this word from research methodology. Do you feel that hyper-threats in the area actually transform in any way foreign policy? And uh, let's go back to looking at the United States and Russia. Do you feel that hyper-threats have either been transformative for the, their policy? Has it actually influenced it? Or have those countries actually downplayed the role of hyper-threats or actually used a hyper-thread tool or mechanism in any way, in any shape or form to further their own agenda? The advent of, of hybrid warfare and hybrid threats and security challenges overall has been a, a rather contested issue, at least um, within academic circles. What we need to, to first understand and, and make sure we, we get the point across is that there is, there is not necessarily something novel with regards to these type of threats. Um, so we did have misinformation or disinformation campaigns. Irregular um, tactics um, have been used since the ancient times in warfare. What is novel about hybrid warfare and the reason that it is probably worth treating it as a, as a phenomenon in itself for analytical purposes is this purposeful, this synthesis, this adoption by the state of the full spectrum of conventional and unconventional tactical elements in the pursuit of national goals. So, in essence, there is nothing new, for example, about using uh, paramilitary forces in Crimea in 2014, what is probably new, at least for modern warfare, is this wonderful synthesis, this, this choreography be between low-intensity conflict, disinformation, the combination of irregular and regular forces that is entirely controlled by the state. And let me remind you at at this point that we all feared in the 90s and the 2000s that private armies, for example, would actually compete with national armies for influence, power, and, and combat readiness. Uh, we feared 
that multinational companies would actually challenge state sovereignty and state power. We, we thought that non-state actors in general would pose a challenge to the influence of states. And what we failed to anticipate is actually that the state is a very competent student and can learn, adopt these methods and approaches for its own purposes and interests. And we've now reached in in the 2020s a situation where states use non-state actors in a seamless manner, combining them um, with conventional means and tactics. In this regard, the state has, has proven to be triumphant, but at the same time, hybrid warfare has a very destabilizing element to it. This is because every single conflict resolution mechanism, whether we're talking about international courts, international law, or international organizations, all these elements have been designed to tackle, address, de-escalate conventional conflicts. So um, there is no global instrument for tackling disinformation campaigns, for example. There is no agreement as to what constitutes an armed attack. For example, a drone that violates airspace or a cyber attack against uh, critical infrastructure and a cyber attack that can probably not be traced back, or even if it's traced back, what is the mechanism through which deterrence can be imposed, protected in, for example, the cyberspace or the media arena? Our institutions and our frameworks, whether legal or organizational, have not been designed to address these challenges. And um, this is potentially destabilizing, and we've seen the implications. As you've said, as you've rightly said, irregularities in warfare have been are, have been pre-existing. They, they, we're talking about uh, hundreds of years uh, that different tactics have uh, always uh, been employed in, across different uh, uh, cases. But uh, the, the, these questions that you've rightly pointed out, how what do we do? How do we respond? How do we even intercept? And how? what are the implications behind to even initiating the process of addressing and identifying these violations, be it through cyber attacks or other means? It's just, uh, these are big questions that we're still puzzling with. Uh, obviously, hyper threats, as you've as you mentioned, is a very it's an essentially contested concept across different circles. But but in general, you know, this uh, it's it's a very interesting concept that we will <laughs> probably not be able to cover in one single episode. But with all this in mind, all this conversation, we've uh, gathered uh, a lot of things. We've covered a lot of ground, and I I wanted to ask: Do you feel that? there's any hope for reducing the intensity of uh, volatile activity in the Eastern Mediterranean? Do you think that things will can improve or do you feel you're, do you take a m- more pessimistic outlook uh, in terms of conflict and security dynamics within the next uh, period of uh, five to 10 years, let's say? Do you feel that things have the capacity to 
uh, improve uh, based on the continuity in these policies by uh, the United States and Russia? Um, uh, very, very um, difficult question. The, the million dollar question. <laughs> um, well, let's let's start from the positive trends um, that I see. Uh, and there's, there's a couple, one intentional, one inadvertent. The intentional, and we have to give credit to regional governments, um, is the birth and, and development of regional partnerships and alliance. Organizations like the um, Eastern Mediterranean Gas Forum or the trilateral partnerships uh, generated by Greece, Cyprus, um, and Egypt, Israel, but also Jordan, the Emirates, um, and so on, um, have begun um, uh, producing very tangible results. And, and um, this is obviously not the equivalent of a regional NATO, um, and it doesn't aspire to become uh, the equivalent of a regional NATO, but it is, it is very encouraging to see multilateral cooperation in a region, within a region that has essentially interacted and, and engaged in cooperation since the ancient times. So um, this, is, this is very, very positive, and I would encourage governments uh, and policymakers um, to um, continue um, in this direction. And it is also very encouraging to see countries like France and the United States supporting these arrangements, these, these uh, new partnerships. The, the second positive development is one that has come out as an accident. It's the result of the pandemic, really, and the social and economic crisis that came with the pandemic and the, um, the closure um, of large segments of economic and social activity. So um, I'm not sure um, I'm not sure about the, the long-lasting impact um, of, of this economic and social crisis, but um, countries like Turkey, for example, um, are experiencing turmoil and instability uh, internally, and this may potentially result in de-escalation in the external sphere. So we're not entirely, uh, I'm, I'm not entirely certain that this is going to be the case, but also Russia, um, which is experiencing mass protests um, very recently, would probably think twice about engaging in, in another conflict or, or generating another conflict. But this is, this is speculation um, because in theory, it could actually go both ways. Leaders could choose to create or exacerbate a crisis in order to acquire short-term political gains. So the jury is out on that one, but it could at least temporarily act supportively in maintaining stability. A more worrying development is the other side of, of, the same, uh, of the same phenomenon, the economic and social crisis that exacerbated existing economic and social problems within the Mediterranean. And we have to remember that 
countries across the, the two shores of the Mediterranean have not exactly been uh, performing admirably in the last decade or so. Italy has experienced long um, political and economic crisis. Greece had just started to recover from a decade-long social and economic crisis. Cyprus had undergone a, a brief but rather serious economic crisis in um, 2013. And, of course, countries like Lebanon, Jordan, uh, as well as Egypt, they have experienced multiple crises in recent years, despite the fact that they appear to be more or less stable in recent years, with the exception of Lebanon, which, um, which is probably the most worrying case study in the region. So speaking about the long-term impact, we, we have to be very, very alert and cautious about uh, the impact of social and economic developments on foreign and security policies. And we'll just have to, to wait and see. It's certainly useful to keep track of both the systemic, but also the obviously the domestic uh, changes in, in, in uh, current affairs. And uh, many thanks for actually emphasizing this. So thank you so much for your time. It's been a very interesting uh, conversation. I wish you all the best in your research. And uh, uh, I do hope to uh, start uh, addressing these issues that you've raised as well in my own research. So thank you. Thank you, Petrus. It's, it's always a pleasure speak to colleagues from the University of Nicosia and um, I'm very grateful for the invitation. Thank you so much.